But today we are beginning to look at the final section of the book of Acts. Beginning in verse 27 of chapter 21, going through the end of this book, this is the final section of the book of Acts. It's a full quarter of the book, and it's roughly half of the book devoted to Paul's life and ministry. Paul's life and ministry in the book of Acts can be divided into two parts of equal lengths, both about eight chapters each. First, we looked at Paul as a missionary in chapters 13 through 20. And now we will look at Paul as a prisoner in chapters 21 through the end of the book. So in this final section that we begin this morning, there are no more missionary journeys. They're over. They're done with, at least the ones recorded in Scripture for us. From this point on, beginning with this morning's passage, Paul is a prisoner. He's in chains. And he will be to the end of the book. This final section is comprised of two primary elements. First, the the travel narratives as Paul is led as a prisoner from Jerusalem to Caesarea and then ultimately to Rome. But secondly, this section is comprised of Paul's defense speeches. There are five distinct speeches by Paul in this closing section. Now, we've heard Paul speak before, obviously. He's given speeches in in places like Ephesus and Antioch and places like Athens. But now his speeches take on a different posture. They take on a defensive posture, not an an evangelistic missionary-focused posture. Here, Paul will be defending his gospel ministry, both the why and the what of his ministry. Why he's proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles and what he's proclaiming to the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. So this morning, he's still in Jerusalem. He arrived in Jerusalem last week in the passage that Pastor Matt preached in verses 17 through 26. There we saw that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, James and the other apostles met with him and they were a bit concerned about how the Jews in Jerusalem were going to respond to this guy. You have to understand, this was an extraordinarily volatile time in Roman-occupied Jerusalem in Judea. This is the, the mid to late 50s, and of course we know what happens in A.D. 70 when as a result of Jerusalem's revolt against Rome, Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is laid low. And so this is an extraordinarily volatile time. And the Jews there in Jerusalem are very agitated and certainly concerned about this guy who was out there ministering to Gentiles, this Jew who is ministering to Gentiles. And so they're concerned about it. And so they ask Paul, as a matter of of grace, as a matter of an olive branch, if you will, to go through a rite of purification, to take four men and go through this rite of purification, which would require him to make a sacrifice and pay for that sacrifice, and even to get a pretty significant haircut. Some would say to shave his head as a Nazarite. And all of this was done 
in an attempt to show that as he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, Paul was not leaving his Jewish roots, but he was, in fact, bringing them to their intended fruition. And so we left Paul last week as he's setting out to do just that, to go through these rites of purification for seven days. And this morning picks up the passage, picks up the action in verse 27 of chapter 21. And we'll go through chapter 22, verse 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, moreover he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came up the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. A citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders bear me witness. From them I received letters <clears throat> to the brothers. And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there. And bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand 
the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came <clears throat> into Damascus. And when Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in, our, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it throughout the ages such that we can trust that what we hold in, the, in our hands is your very breath to us. And so, Father, we... We turn our attention to it now and we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us from it, but not just so that we would walk away with a better understanding of what this text says and means, but Lord, how to apply it to our lives so that we might be changed, so that we might look more like Jesus as a result of your word. And Father, we lift up those among us who have not responded to the gospel, and we pray, Father, that as we hear the Apostle Paul defend the gospel, that you would bring them to faith in Jesus by responding to the gospel. We ask that you would do this, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's passage can be divided into two sections. First, there's Paul's arrest in the first part and Paul's defense in the second part. In Paul's arrest, we see the crowd's reaction to Paul, and then we see um, him being arrested at the hands of the Roman tribune, and then beginning in verse 36, we hear Paul give a defense of his ministry and defense of the gospel. So let's look at those two sections and seek to uh, see what we can glean from each of them. First, Paul's arrest. What can we learn and apply to our lives from this passage? So Luke picks up the action here. Paul has finished his rites of purification. He's finished the seven days. He goes into Jerusalem, he goes into the city, and he goes immediately to the temple to present himself to the priest, which is what was asked of him. And we're told that Jews from Asia see him there in the temple. These are the Jews who had been following Paul all through his missionary journeys We've seen them follow him from one city to another, causing trouble and uproar in each place where they go. And now they follow him to Jerusalem. They see him there. They see him in the temple. And they begin stirring up the crowd against him. They lay hands on him. And this is not in a nice, affirming way, but in a hostile and aggressive way. They lay hands on him. 
and they, they cry out these accusations against Paul. Two accusations are laid on Paul here, both of which are false. First, they accuse him of teaching, quote, everyone everywhere. We notice the superlatives there. He's teaching everyone and everywhere against three things. First, against the people. Secondly, against the law. And thirdly, against this place that is the temple. And of course, we've been walking with Paul. We know that he's done no such thing. He hasn't taught against the people, that is against the Jews. In fact, he deeply loves the Jews. He's one of them. He adores his fellow countrymen, kinsmen of the flesh. We remember that he wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth on his third missionary journey. And while there, he writes this from Romans 10 verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. He says, that's my heart's desire and earnest prayer to God. Previously, in, the, in, the, in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, he wrote this. For I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen in the flesh. Astounding. Paul loves his fellow Jews so much that if it takes him being accursed and cut off from Christ in order for them to come to know Christ, then he says, I'm willing to do that. I love them and I'm concerned for them so much. It's a false accusation. He doesn't teach against the people. Neither does he teach against the law. Now, he did teach that the law could not save, that, that the law, the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, though not abrogated by the Jew or for the Jew, was never intended to provide a path to righteousness, but rather to show how unrighteous we are and how much we need a Savior. But he never taught against the law, and he never taught that a Jew should not follow the law. Paul certainly never taught against the temple. In fact, he's, he's here having just purified himself, gone through the purification rites in order to observe the, and uphold the traditions of the temple. And so this first accusation is completely fabricated and untrue. The second accusation was that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. Now this was strictly forbidden. You couldn't do that. Gentiles could not come into the temple. If they, went, they were allowed into the outermost court, but they couldn't go beyond that. And if they did, it was punishable by death according to the Torah. And even though Paul knew and taught that the gospel had broken down all of the walls dividing Jews and Gentiles, and even though he had preached to the Gentiles that the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility had been brought down by the gospel, yet he never violated those laws concerning the various temple courts. Luke provides some commentary there in verse 29 as to why these Asian Jews may have thought uh, that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple courts. They had seen him walking around with Trophimus, 
Trophimus, as we recall, is one of the guys that, that came to faith in Christ in Ephesus. He was a Gentile, and he began journeying and traveling with Paul. And, and they see him walking with Paul, and they assume that one of the four guys that, with, with whom he had done these purification rites was Trophimus, the Gentile. But he wasn't. Paul was similarly innocent of this accusation as well. And so in summary, we can say that Paul was falsely accused like someone else we know, right? And so they lay hands on him. And we're told in verse 30 that all the city was stirred up and the people ran together, seizing Paul, dragging him out of the temple, and then the temple gates are shut. Parenthetically, this is the last time we see the temple. Luke is telling us the temple gates are shut now. Now everything else is going to take place outside of that. So they shut the temple gates, and we're told in verse 31 that they were seeking to kill him. And in verse 32, it's confirmed for us that their seeking to kill him was by the means of beating him with their own bare hands. They're beating Paul to death on the streets of Jerusalem. And this beating only stops, and Paul's life is spared narrowly, only when the Roman tribune steps in with his soldiers and arrests him. Ironically, it is Paul's arrest that ends up saving his life. Otherwise, the Jews there in Jerusalem would have continued to beat him until he breathed his last. In fact, we're told that as they take him away in chains, they have to carry him because of the violence of the crowd or the mob as Luke refers to them so paul's arrested and it is this very arrest that more than likely ends up saving his life so what do we glean from this part of the story before paul begins to speak what do we see and learn four things here that i want to draw your attention to first of all from this section we see something and learn something here about the depravity of man as this mob is stirred up into a frenzy and drags Paul out of the temple and begin to beat him with their own hands, trying to beat him to death. The lack of respect for the dignity of human life here is astonishing, rivaled only perhaps by the lack of respect for the dignity of human life that we observe today by the pro-abortion movement. When life is not valued, abortion only makes sense. When life is reduced to its cellular components and not seen as the miracle of God that it is, made in the image of our Creator, then ending that life, whether by beating or abortion, is no big deal. But any time, church, we're confronted with the depravity of man in Scripture, we need to make sure and be careful that we're not just looking at the depravity out there, but that we're looking at the depravity in here, in our own hearts. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that's what these guys were doing 
on the streets of Jerusalem to Paul. They were trying to murder him. Jesus says, you've heard that it's said, you shouldn't murder. But he goes on. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In that sense, we who have hated our brother, insulted our brother or sister, is no different from the abortionist. Is no different from those who with their bare hands are pummeling the Apostle Paul, trying to kill him on the streets of Jerusalem. We are a sinful people with depraved minds and hearts who desperately needed a Savior to come and rescue us from our sin and the judgment we deserve because of our sin. So we learn something about the depravity of man. Secondly, we learn something about man's desire to try to earn righteousness. As depraved as this mob is, we need to bear in mind why they're doing this. You recall from verse 20 earlier in this chapter, we were told by James and the apostles that the Jews in Jerusalem were very zealous for the law. And what that meant was that they saw the law as their means for earning righteousness. That was their hope, was following that law. If they could only follow the law, they would earn righteousness, so they thought and presumed. But of course, Paul would later explain that no righteousness would ever come by following the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ but the Jews just simply couldn't wrap their minds around this. They, they fell victim to what many, if not most, in our day fall victim to. And that is the lie that if I can just do enough good, it's going to outweigh my bad. And the good that they were trying to do was outlined for them in this law. And so if they thought that Paul was teaching against the law... Well, that's why they were so hot and bothered about him. Church, what is it in the heart of man that makes him think that he can do enough good to outweigh his traitorous sins and rebellion against the God who made him? What is it in the heart of man that makes us think that we can be good enough to earn righteousness? It's either one of two things. It's either because we underestimate our own depravity or we overestimate our ability to do and be good. And perhaps both of those things are at play. And so to counter those lies, we must press into the truths that, that our depravity and our sinfulness is so much greater and more pervasive than we could ever imagine. And the truth that our ability to do and be good is so much lesser than we think. 
We are far more sinful and far more, more hopelessly lost than we could ever possibly imagine. And we are far, far less able to do any good, much less enough good to earn righteousness and to earn justification. But there's just something in the heart of man that thinks that he can do it. There's just something in the heart of man that thinks that he, he can pull himself up by his bootstraps and just be better. And when that man is told that he, no, he can't, that's bad news for him. And sometimes, like the Jews here in Jerusalem, they respond with violence, hostility, and aggression. And so we learn something here about man's desire to earn righteousness. Thirdly, we learn something here about the sovereignty of God. In the book of Acts, we've seen various responses to the gospel. Sometimes people respond to the gospel in faith. Sometimes people respond to the, to, to the gospel as here with violence and hostility. And God is sovereign in both. Paul is not in charge of how they respond. Paul wants them to come to faith in Jesus. That's his desire. That's our desire for everyone we ever share the gospel with outside these walls and inside these walls, that they would come to faith in Jesus. But Paul is not in control of how they respond and who responds. He wants them to come to faith, as we read from Romans earlier. And although many have, these do not. Instead, they respond with violence and hostility. And church, as we speak with our friends, neighbors, and co-workers about the gospel, as we expose them to the claims of Christ and their need for rescue from sin, we likewise are not in control of their response. Our job is simply, church, to be faithful, to be a witness. And it's God's responsibility, God's job, God's prerogative to bring them to faith in Christ, to bring them to new life in Christ. And so with this story, we're reminded of the depravity in our own hearts. We're warned about our inclination towards self-righteousness. And we're encouraged to trust in God's sovereignty as we live out the Great Commission. But fourthly, we see here something about the expectation of gospel opposition. Paul had to suspect that this was going to happen. Because after all, earlier in this chapter... It had been prophesied to him that this would happen when he got to Jerusalem. As Paul and his companions were making their, their way to Jerusalem, they stop over at Philip's house in Caesarea, and there a prophet named Agabus meets them. Pick up the story in verse 10 and following. While we were staying for many days there with Philip, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt... And he bound his hands and feet. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happens. What we have in this passage is simply fulfillment of that which Paul had to suspect was going to happen because of the prophecy of Agabus in Caesarea. If you recall in that story, Luke and the other traveling companions who were there with Paul took Agabus's prophecy as reason enough for Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, and they tried to prevent him from going on to Jerusalem. And we hear Paul's response 
beginning in verse 12 of that passage, when we heard this, that is Agabus's prophecy, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. With the prospect of violent persecution and at the risk of death, Paul was not dissuaded. But rather he was compelled out of a loving concern for his fellow countrymen, his kinsmen according to the flesh, and out of a deep-rooted passion for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of those two things, he was compelled to endure opposition and defend the gospel. Friend, by God's grace, gratefully, we will probably never experience anything close to the kind of opposition that the Apostle Paul experienced in, later in his ministry. Perhaps we will, but more than likely I think we'll be spared that. But we can and should still expect opposition as we seek to be faithful to be his witnesses. And dare I say, more and more as we live and are sent to a culture that is growing in its hostility to the gospel like the culture of Paul's day. We should expect it. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul reminded young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's as if the words of Jesus in John 15 and the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 coalesce into our own Agabus prophecy, warning us, that as we seek to be faithful, to be his witnesses in our culture, we will face opposition. We will face opposition. Maybe that opposition comes in the form of being rejected or ridiculed. Maybe it comes in the form of being dismissed or canceled. Or maybe it will come in the form more similar to the kinds of opposition that Paul faced. But if we're obedient to be as witnesses, we will be opposed. And church, like Paul, let's not let the expectation of opposition dissuade us from our mission. So Paul's arrested. He's being taken away into the barracks. But on the way, he asks for permission to address the mob. And as he's given permission, he begins to speak to them in verse 1 of chapter 22 in what is the first of what will be five defense speeches that he gives in the closing chapters of Acts. Now, before we dive into the details and content of his defense, we need to step back and ask ourselves, what is he defending? What is he trying to do here in addressing the crowd? He had been accused of not only not being Jewish enough himself, but teaching against the, the Jewish traditions and customs to others. And not only, that, not only that, but he's been accused of violating those traditions and customs by bringing a Gentile into the temple. And so Paul gives this defense here in chapter 2, at least in part, 
as a way of responding to those accusations. But we know enough about Paul and his heart by this point to know that he's not about defending himself. He's not concerned about defending himself, but he is concerned about defending the gospel. Paul's not merely standing up for his religious liberty and defending his right to speak or to believe in Jesus. Rather, he's providing an answer to his accusers here so that the gospel could be seen for what it was, so the gospel could be preached and heard in its true light. You see, the gospel message in Jerusalem was at risk of being ignored, compromised, veiled, and dismissed. Why? Because Paul's life and ministry was brought into question and potential disrepute because of these accusations. The logic of the Jewish charge against him went like this. Paul is anti-Jewish, so his message is anti-Jewish. So we got to get rid of Paul so we get rid of his message because we don't need an anti-Jewish message here in Jerusalem. And Paul is saying, no, I'm not anti-Jewish. And my message is not anti-Jewish. Paul gives this defense primarily for ensuring that the gospel continues to gain a hearing among the Jews. And we can see this play out in the content of Paul's speech. We can divide his speech into three parts. He, he talks about his past, his conversion, and then his calling. In the first five verses of chapter 22, Paul reminds them of who he was. He reminds them of his past. He addresses them in verse 1 as brothers and fathers. He's trying to make that familial connection. I'm one of you guys. I'm a fellow Jew. Luke tells us in verse 2, Actually, in verse 1 and verse 2, he says twice that he addresses them in the Hebrew language. He's trying to show that he's one of them. But what does Paul tell them about his past? In verse 3, he says, I am a Jew. I'm one of you. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. That's kind of like when someone says, I wasn't born in the South, but I got here as soon as I could. He's trying to show the connection with their Jewish heritage. Verse 3 continues, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbinical teacher. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. In other words, I had the right kind of upbringing, guys. I was a Jew of Jews. I had the right kind of educated. I was educated by the right kind of teachers. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are. Again, he's trying to show them that he's part of the Jewish family and that, that his heart beats with theirs. But then beginning in verse 4, he admits to them that he was actually a persecutor of Christians. He says, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. I can see Paul pointing at them here. Ask them, they'll tell you. He goes on, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were there to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. What's Paul doing here? He's doing two things, I believe. 
One, as we've already mentioned, he's showing them that he's not anti-Jewish. That he's a Jew himself. And he's got the right pedigree. And he's zealous for God. And he's, he's trying to get them to see this, not just so that they will think more highly of him, but so that they won't discount and discredit and dis, get rid of, avoid and ignore his gospel message. The second thing that Paul is doing here is he's setting the groundwork for declaring the gospel message to them. And part of declaring the gospel message is talking about sin and showing that we're all sinful and separated from God because of our sin. And so he's admitting to them here that he's a sinner as well. Paul is, in essence, here confessing his own role in persecuting, imprisoning, and even murdering followers of Jesus. Now, in this setting, most of his hearers would probably applaud him for that. They didn't think that was wrong, because that's exactly what they're doing to Paul himself, what they wanted to do. But Paul here is saying, guys, I'm not a good person. I'm not a good person, and my my zealousness for God was simply me masquerading as a murderer. I'm a sinner. So he shares with them his past. Next, he shares with them his conversion in verses 6 through 11. Here, Paul shares that incredible story that we read about back in Acts 9, where Jesus shows up to Paul, reveals himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. There, we're told that he was blinded by a great light, and then he heard a voice from from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, by his own admission, was persecuting the church. And persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. And so knowing that this is Jesus speaking to him, how does Paul address him? He says, what shall I do, Lord? Having heard that this is Jesus, he calls him Lord. In a moment for Paul, Jesus goes from liar to Lord. In a moment, Paul had gone from persecutor to professor, professing that Jesus Christ is Lord. In a moment, he had gone from sinner to saint. In a moment, he had gone from enemy of God into child of God. And friend, when God leads us across the line of faith to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope, The same has happened with us. We are transformed in a moment from an enemy of God into a child of God, from a sinner to a saint, to one destined to an eternity of judgment, to one destined for glory, clothed by the very righteousness of Jesus. This is what happens to Paul in a flash of light, in a moment. And Paul is careful here in his story to show that Jesus is the hero of the story, not Paul. It wasn't Paul's zealousness for the law that was efficacious. It wasn't his sincere devotion to the chief priests and the elders that was efficacious. It wasn't his 
longing desire to serve God that was efficacious. It was Jesus. Jesus is the hero in converting Saul to Paul, not Paul himself. It was an encounter with Jesus. And if Jesus had not shown up to Paul on this road to Damascus, he's telling them there on the streets of Jerusalem, guys, I'd still be out there persecuting Christians today. Paul is clear. I didn't save myself. I was a sinner. Jesus showed up and he saved me and he changed the very direction of my life and the eternal destiny of my soul. Jesus is the hero of my story, Paul says. Church, in our own stories of our conversion, let's make sure that Jesus is the hero of our story, not ourselves, not some other person, not some other organization or church or ministry or speaker. Let's make sure that Jesus is the hero of our story. When God gives us opportunities to share the gospel, we can and should tell our story, but let's make sure that our story is all about his story Let's focus on what Jesus did, not on what we did. Let's follow the example of Paul. I was a sinner, Jesus showed up, and he saved me. Because after all, that gets to the very heart of the gospel, does it not? That's grace. Paul did not deserve to be saved. Paul deserved to be punished for persecuting Christians. But in spite of his sin, Jesus showed up and saved him. Like the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Why? Because Jesus showed up and saved me. Fourthly, and finally, Paul shared about his calling And like when he shared about his past earlier, here Paul is attempting to show the the connection, the, the continuity, if you will, between his life and ministry and the Jewish faith and customs. In verse 12, he mentions that his calling came through the ministry of one Agabus, whom he refers to in verse 12 as a devout man according to the law well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in that area. In other words, this Ananias who laid his hands on me, restored my sight, and gave me my calling, he was a good Jew. And how did Ananias address Paul in Damascus? Verse 13, he addresses him as Brother Saul. In other words, Paul, then called Saul, was was a brother to this devout Jew who was well respected by all the other Jews named Ananias. Again, Paul is highlighting the continuity between his life and ministry and the Jewish faith. Paul quotes Ananias in verse 14 where Ananias says to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you. That word literally means handpicked you, chose you. Paul is driving the point home. I'm not anti-Jewish. Yahweh, the the Jewish God, handpicked me to do what? Three things. To know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. To know his will. Ananias said that 
the God of our fathers chose me to know his will. In other words, Paul's plan, Paul's life of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles was not Paul's plan. It was God's will, is what he's saying. To see the righteous one, literally the just one. This is a reference to the righteous branch of prophecy that would come from the line of King David, that would one day sit on the throne of King David forever. This is a messianic title and reference straight from the mouth of this devout Jew, Ananias. You were handpicked by God to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. And so after restoring his sight, Ananias confirms what is the calling on Paul, what he heard from the mouth of the righteous one that Ananias had seen in a vision. He says to them, to him in verse 15, you will be a witness for him, that is for Jesus, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so his calling generically is to be a witness for Jesus, to tell others about his resurrection, about his lordship, and about the grace that he offers those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone. And of course, we know that this is generically our calling as well. We've talked about it all throughout the book of Acts, that we're to be his witnesses to be witnesses of Jesus, to tell everyone everywhere of all that we have seen and heard about Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and reign. But Paul's generic calling gains greater specificity in verses 17 through 21 as Paul relays a, a story that's not recorded for us back in the Acts 9 passage, but he tells it here of how Jesus showed up to him in a vision again and told him that he was to leave Jerusalem because they will not listen to your testimony about me and that he was to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. So what's Paul saying here? He's he's telling his hearers, this agitated crowd, that Jesus is Yahweh's son. He's the righteous one. He's the promised Messiah. And he's further telling them that after Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus, he later showed up to Paul in a vision and told him explicitly to go to the Gentiles. And so Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was not Paul's plan, but it was, in fact, Yahweh's plan. And with that, the Jews had had enough. His speech is interrupted. They stop listening. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now we're going to stop there. and We're going to look, beginning next week, at the various reactions to Paul's defense. But in our closing time, I want us to consider how we might bring application to our lives from this text. We've already considered what application might look like from the first half of the passage about Paul's arrest. As we see the depravity in the Jews from Asia as they mistreat Paul, we're reminded of our own depravity and need for a Savior. As we see their zealousness for the law, 
we're warned about about our own inclination towards self-righteousness. As we consider how some responded to Paul's gospel with faith and some responded as these did with violence, we're encouraged to trust in God's sovereignty and salvation and simply be faithful to proclaim the gospel and leave the results to him. And then as we saw Paul endure beatings and arrest and imprisonment, we're prompted to expect opposition when we seek to be faithful to be his witnesses. But what application can we glean now from the second half of this passage as we look at Paul's defense? As we look at and listen to Paul, Paul's defense speeches, both here in chapter 22 and the other four that we'll cover in the remainder of, cha- uh, of the book of Acts, I think we can think about application to his defense speeches along three different planes. And so I want you to think about these, mark them down, keep them in your mind as we continue to listen to Paul's speeches through the remainder of the book. The first plane is to focus on defending the gospel, not ourselves. Defending the gospel, not ourselves. Now, I think you can make a pretty good argument from Acts for Christians using peaceful and rightful and lawful means to defend religious liberty all while submitting to the governing authorities. That's what Paul will do. Paul will use all rightful, lawful, and peaceful means to defend his right to continue his gospel ministry. That's why he will appeal to his Roman citizenship in the next passage. And that's why he will ultimately appeal to Caesar. But I would argue that Paul's goal is not to defend religious liberty so that he can just go back to his safe little Christian bubble in Antioch and not be offended by the worldly stuff that's going on around him. His defense has an ultimate purpose of paving the way so that people would continue to be exposed to the truths of the gospel. Church, hear me on this. This is a word for myself as well as to all of us. I fear that much of our talk today about religious liberty is short-sighted, myopic. Should we argue for, press for, labor for, and vote for defending religious liberty? Yes. But not just so that we can stay in our safe little Christian bubbles and be insulated from the baddies out there. But rather, we ought to defend religious liberties for the ultimate purpose of guarding the gospel and ensuring that the gospel will continue to gain a hearing in our world. And so when we see Paul give a defense of his ministry and message, the focus is always on defending the gospel. Even when Paul is laboring to defend his own Jewishness and his ministry as he does here in this passage, the purpose is not just so that they will accept him as a fellow Jewish brother, but rather the purpose is that they would see that Jesus is the son of the Jewish God. And that the plan to bring the gospel to the Gentiles is God's plan, not Paul's. 
Paul's defense of himself was the purpose of defending and guarding the gospel, and so should ours. So that's the first plane that we can think about application in our lives, both this defense speech and the remainder of them. The second plane, the second plane is that of actually proclaiming the gospel. Not just defending the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel. What do we learn from Paul here about proclaiming the gospel to those who are opposed to its truths? Because that's the context in which we live, right? And that's the context in which Paul preached. A culture that was opposed to the gospel. So what do we learn about proclaiming the gospel to a culture that is opposed to the gospel? Number one, we learn that it takes great courage and boldness. Imagine being beaten by a mob of people who don't like the gospel and then asking for permission to share the gospel with them. It takes great courage and it takes great boldness and it will require that from us. That boldness and courage is available to us in Christ. It's not going to well up from us just trying to be bold. It's going to come from us pressing into the gospel ourselves. Secondly, we learn here that it requires grace and patience to do this. Paul doesn't react here in anger or bitterness, though perhaps we would understand it if he did. They were beating him to death. But he doesn't respond in anger or bitterness. He responds with graciousness and, defense and patience. Paul will later instruct young Timothy in this way. As he's writing to Timothy while he's imprisoned, he had to be thinking about this time in Jerusalem. He'll say this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. You had to know that's what was in Paul's heart here. Peter will write in 1 Peter 3, In your hearts, Honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense and to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. It takes grace and patience to continue to proclaim gospel truths in a culture that is opposed and hostile to it. Three, we need to remember that we have to address sin and depravity, and we can't shrink back from that. If someone does not come to grips with their own depravity, then they will not long for the grace that is available in Christ. Fourth, we need to make sure that we make Jesus the hero of our story. Because he is. He's the hero of our story. If it weren't for Jesus, none of us would be here. Fifth and finally, proclaiming the gospel to those who are opposed to its truths is a matter of obedience. Just as Paul received a calling, so have we. And our calling is to be as witnesses to everyone everywhere of what we have seen and heard about Jesus, including those who are hostile to the gospel, both near and far away. That's the second plane on which we could consider application to Paul's defense speeches. The third and final plane 
that I want us to keep in mind as we think about this defense and the remainder of his defense speeches is responding to the gospel. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to the heart of Paul. Listen to him as he stands up and argues passionately in defense of this gospel, in defense of offering Jesus to those who were trying to beat him to death. Paul says, I didn't deserve to be rescued. I was a sinner. I couldn't change my condition. Jesus showed up and saved me. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to Paul. Listen to him this week. Listen to him in the ensuing weeks as he defends the gospel. And our prayer, our prayer is that you would respond to the gospel. That God would lead you to repentance, to a knowledge of the truth. That he would grant to you faith to trust in Christ alone. So that by God's grace, you too would be transformed in a moment. From a sinner into a saint. From an enemy of God into a child of God. That's our prayer for you. That's our desire for you. Respond to the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your book, for this word. In it we find you. In it we find hope. In it we find encouragement. In it we are challenged. We're corrected. Father, I pray that you would take the truths of this word, plant them deep on our hearts and lives. Help us not to walk away unmoved and unchanged. We pray that your Holy Spirit would attend to the reading and preaching of your word with conviction to live our lives as missionaries to the world that you have sent us to, relying on you for wisdom, patience, courage, boldness, Trust in you every step of the way that response to the gospel is your territory, not ours. God, lead us to be faithful in this as a church. And Father, we pray for those among us, even now, even in this very room, Lord, those who have never responded to the gospel. God, we ask that you would lead them across the line of faith to trust in Jesus. May it be their testimony that I was a sinner and Jesus showed up, and he saved me. May you do this for your own glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.